Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Jane Elizabeth Manning James was among the early African-American converts to Mormonism. After joining the church in the early 1840s, James remained a faithful member until her death in Salt Lake City in 1908. Although she was well known among church members during her lifetime, James was largely forgotten after her death. However, beginning in about 2000, there was a significant uptick in non-academic LDS discourse, discourse about James. And the uh, lecture in the Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture, which is happening uh, today at 7 p.m. in the LDS uh, Tabernacle in downtown Logan. This is the 21st annual lecture. That's Quincy Newell. Uh, will analyze this recent uh, conversation about Jane, showing that she has become a way for Latter-day Saints to talk about both gender and race in ways that create a usable past for the 21st century. Uh, lecture is uh, today at 7 p.m., as I mentioned. Uh, Quincy New is a specialist in religious history of the American West, and after more than a decade on the Religious Studies faculty at University of Wyoming, she now teaches in the Religious Studies Department at Hamilton College in New York. Quincy New, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, so one of your books, your first book, Constructing Lives at Mission San Francisco, 1776 to 1821, was published by University of New Mexico Press in 2009. That's where I'd like to start. Uh, we've heard uh, this morning uh, uh, from the Pope, speaking to a joint session of Congress. Um, and uh, I think at least one thing he's done in the U.S. connects in with some of the research that you've done. He uh, he made a saint. He officially right. declared a saint of... of uh, of a uh, father who who worked in that area. Right. Uh, He canonized Junipero Serra, who was the priest who founded the California mission system and oversaw it for quite some time. Um, Serra has been vilified and uh, praised by people who study the California mission system. Um, Those who see the mission system as tantamount to genocide of the California Indians, obviously, are not so happy with that. Um, But others see him as really a model to emulate. I think it's important to note that when saints are canonized in the Catholic Church, it's not um, that they are made into a saint, but rather that their sainthood is recognized. So they've always been a saint, um, and now the Church is coming to recognize that. Uh, So uh, could you outline the... uh, a little more detail on both sides. Obviously, the church, the Catholic Church, has come down on the side of... Of sainthood, of yes. Of sainthood, yes. yes. Um, yeah, the... Um, <laughs> this is a, there's a scholarly debate about what happened in California and how, uh, how much violence played a role in the mission system. Um, certainly, the colonization of California was not a peaceful process, um, and it was not peaceful... Um, from its beginning until its end, when when California became an American territory, um, Americans flooded into the area and killed California Indians on site sometimes. Um, So that history is one of extreme violence. Um, But the question here is, what was Sarah's role in that um, process? And those who are opposed to his canonization see him as somebody who sort of um, facilitated that process of, of killing people. Um, and they, they think, you know, for understandable reasons, that that's not really what a saint does. Mm-hmm. Um, those who uh, are in favor of his canonization um, see him as somebody who made possible the conversion of California um, and made it possible for the colonization of California to be slightly more humane than it otherwise might have been. Um, the Catholic Church can be seen as playing a, a sort of uh, moderating role um, in that colonization process, keeping Spanish soldiers from doing their absolute worst um, and maybe making things a little bit better for the Indians who were there. Hmm. And this, of course, is an old story that, you know, if you you have a new power structure come in, then the original inhabitants are going to be possibly marginalized or worse. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll talk about some of this marginalization and uh, attempt to move to the center as well with the story we're going to to make a transition to now. 
Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. That is our email, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Quincy Newell is with us. Uh, she's giving the 21st annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. Sponsored by Special Collections and Archives, University Libraries, Leonard J. Arrington Lecture and Archives Foundation, and College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and Utah State University. That's 7 o'clock uh, this evening in the Logan LDS Tabernacle in downtown Logan. Lecture is free and open uh, to the public. So let's uh, get into talking about Jane Elizabeth Manning James. I think uh, people, especially those of the LDS faith, Mormons, have a, would have a vague knowledge that she is an early African-American convert to the LDS Church. Right, yeah. Lots of people have heard a little bit about Jane James, but most people don't know her whole story. I don't I wouldn't say that I even know her whole story. I'm still working on that. Um, Jane was born in the early 1820s. We're not quite sure when. Um, She was uh, in Connecticut. Her mother had been enslaved, um, but Jane was free when she was born, and her mother had been freed at that point. Um, She went to work for a wealthy white family when she was fairly young, probably around six years old or so, um, in New Canaan, Connecticut, uh, the Fitches. Um, and essentially grew up in that family, um, working as a domestic servant. Uh, She joined the Congregational Church in New Canaan in 1842, 1841, something like that. Um, And within a year or so, she heard an LDS missionary preach, Charles Wendell. Um, And she was convinced, and she decided to ask for baptism. She got baptized. Um, She experienced the gift of tongues um, shortly after her baptism, which persuaded her that she had made the right choice. Um, And she persuaded her family to get baptized as well. Um, They, along with a bunch of other converts, both white and black, um, then traveled to Nauvoo in 1843. The black converts, um, they, they were going by boat, um, and in Buffalo, the black converts were kicked off the boat. Um, so they had to walk from Buffalo to Nauvoo, um, and that's a distance of maybe 900 miles, something like that. Um, so they get to Nauvoo, um, they go to the mansion house, and they're welcomed by Joseph and Emma Smith, um, and Jane takes a job there as a domestic servant um, for the Smith family um, and works there until Joseph Smith is killed. Um, more or less. She goes up to Burlington at one point to uh, find work there. Um, She remains Mormon and uh, goes to work for Brigham Young. Um, She gets married in Nauvoo to another black convert, Isaac James. Um, So James is her married name. Um, And they go to Utah with the saints. They're in uh, the main encampment, but one of the lead companies. Um, So they get to uh, Salt Lake in September of 1847. Um, Jane uh, And her husband, Isaac, do pretty well in Salt Lake. They buy land. um, They have a house in the city. um, They have farm animals and uh, tools. um, But in 1870, Isaac leaves with a white fortune teller. He divorces Jane, leaves the state. He shows up actually in the 1880 census in Portland, Oregon, working as a janitor. Um, And so Jane and her family have this kind of setback in their economic circumstances because the main breadwinner is gone. Um, So Jane starts taking in laundry. She makes soap. um, Her sons help with the family income as well. Um, And she survives. It's fine. During this time, she takes up with another black Mormon convert named Frank Perkins. Um, We know this because she starts signing her name as Jane Perkins for a while. That relationship doesn't last. She goes back to being Jane James. Um, And she starts petitioning for ceilings and for endowments. Um, She wants to get her endowment. Um, She wants to be sealed in marriage. She asks to be sealed to Walker Lewis, who is a black uh, priesthood holder um, in the 19th century. Um, She asks to be sealed to her her ex-husband, Isaac James. Um, Most of all, she asks to be sealed to Joseph Smith as a child. Um, And church leaders keep saying no. They'll let her be baptized for her dead, um, but she can't be uh, sealed. She can't get her endowments um, because those temple privileges aren't available uh, to people of African descent. Um, So she just, she keeps asking. She writes letters. She goes to visit church leaders. um, She has influential people write on her behalf, um, and they keep saying no. But finally, in the 1890s, church leaders come up with a compromise. 
And they say, okay, well, we won't seal you as a child to Joseph Smith, but we will seal you as a servant. And apparently Jane says yes. Um, So they do this ceremony. Zina Young stands in as a proxy for Jane. Even though Jane is alive, um, she is not allowed into those rooms in the temple. Um, And so she has to have a proxy. Joseph F. Smith stands for uh, his uncle, Joseph Smith. Um, And Jane is sealed as a servant to Joseph Smith in 1894. Um, I think that that episode is really interesting because Jane is asking for something that lots of people are getting at the time. They're being sealed to Joseph Smith as a child, and this is happening left, right, and center. Um, So Jane is asking for what other people are already getting. It's not an unusual request. It's a fairly conservative um, request, and church leaders respond with a kind of radical compromise creating a new ceremony so that they don't have to um, stick with the conservative um, ceremony that that would create an interracial family. Mm. Um, Being sealed as a servant isn't enough for Jane. She keeps asking to be sealed as a child. um, And she continues that campaign basically until her death in 1908. Sometime between 1902 and 1908, she dictated a a short autobiography to Elizabeth Roundy. Um, She said that she wanted it to be read at her funeral, but I think she also gave her permission for it to be circulated among church leaders. She painted herself as kind of a virtuous Mormon during that time um, or in that autobiography and and really played up her intimacy with Joseph Smith and the, the prophet's family. I think that's an effort to say to church leaders, look, Joseph welcomed me into his family. Why won't you let me be a part of that? Um, She also gave an interview to the Young Woman's Journal in 1905 as part of a centennial of Joseph Smith's birth, um, sort of focusing on her memories of the prophet. Um, And she shows up in a lot of documents, um, in people's diaries, in um, the woman's exponent, in meeting minutes, that kind of thing. So... Um, the biography that I'm writing of her is very much um, a, a sort of needle in a haystack kind of effort. Um, but she becomes this kind of Forrest Gump of Mormonism, right? She she shows up, she knows all the famous people, she shows up in all the important scenes just sort of in the background. So she's a fascinating person. And, uh, uh, of course, she's at a, she epitomizes uh, issues of race and of gender, right? Which, right, right. Which we... I don't know if we've talked about all the way through Mormonism, but certainly are talking about today. Um, so I want to get to that, but I, I want to go back to um, take me back to to um, Jane James, Jane Manning, I guess at this point in the household of of Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. How how was she treated? Was she remember the family? What uh... Jane says she's treated just like she's one of Joseph Smith's children. Um, she says he's very friendly to her. Um, he shakes her hand every morning and sees how she's doing. Um, she is she's allowed a lot of access. Um, in her autobiography, she also talks about an episode where uh, she goes into Joseph Smith's mother's room. And Mother Smith says, go over to that bureau and get out a bundle in the top drawer and bring it over here. And so Jane does. And um, Mother, Mother Smith says, um, you've heard me talk about and you've heard Joseph Smith talk about the Urim and Thummim. And Jane says, yes, I've heard of those things. And Mother Smith says, well, now you're handling them. And when I'm dead and gone, you can tell the saints that you handled mm-hmm. these tools. Mm-hmm. Now go put them away. Mm-hmm. Um, so she never actually sees them, but she handles them. They're wrapped up in a cloth or mm-hmm. something. Um, so she has access to sacred objects. Um, she says that Emma Smith offered her the opportunity to be adopted um, as the Smith's child way back in Nauvoo um, when she's working for Emma Smith. And, and Jane says, I didn't understand. I was so green. Um, but I would really, later she's saying, I would really like to take them up on that offer now, mm-hmm. please. Mm-hmm. Can I please change my mind? Um, so Jane paints a picture of a very intimate relationship. Um, she knows about plural marriage before that um, doctrine is, is taught to the church at large because she talks to Eliza Partridge and Sarah and Maria Lawrence and some of the other plural wives, and they spill the secret um, and let her in on the secret. Um, And Jane accepts it immediately in her telling. Um, So 
she paints this picture of of being really part of the inner circle um, in Nauvoo. Um, and you get the sense of kind of a loss, right, that she wants that back, mm-hmm. um, but that she can't she can't get people to give it to her. Yeah. Again. We'll take a break. And when we come back, uh, I want to talk about that loss, because uh, I think most people are, are aware uh, that priesthood was given to African-Americans in Joseph Smith's time. Mm-hmm. It, it was later that the, that was removed. And so right. that, that is a loss to, to, to African-Americans. And uh, then it's many years, decades and decades before that's, uh, that's restored in, in 1978. Uh, we're talking with Quincy Newell, and she's presenting Narrating Jane, telling the story of an early African-American Mormon woman. And that is uh, this evening at 7 p.m. in the Logan LDS Tabernacle on Main Street in Logan. It's the 21st annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. Quincy Newell is a specialist in religious history of the American West, and she now teaches at Hamilton College after several years at University of Wyoming. Uh, she is working on a biography of Jane Elizabeth Manning James that will be published by Oxford University Press and be uh, upcoming. And uh, Dr. Newell says that uh, the, the talk that has been happening recently since about 2000 about uh, Jane James uh, shows that she's become a way for Latter-day Saints to talk about both gender and race in ways that create a usable past for the 21st century. We'll talk about that following the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Getting all the nutrients you need on a daily basis can be a difficult task. Incorporating multivitamins can help you get those key nutrients into your diet. Get the right vitamin that includes 100% of the recommended daily allowances and includes all of the recommended vitamins and minerals. Take the pill that's right for you. Vitamins are found in smaller pills, chewables, or powders. Eat something. Take vitamins with food can help avoid getting an upset stomach. Keep track of what you take. This can help you keep track of over or under consumption of specific vitamins. Taking a multivitamin can give your body the nutrients it lacks, keep you healthy by growing, healing and repairing cells, improve your immune system, keeping you bone and heart healthy, and giving you an overall sense of balance and wellness. This is Nicole Jackson with the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. Thanks for being with us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Quincy Newell. Uh, She's presenting the 21st Annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. That'll be happening this evening at 7 p.m. in the Logan LDS Tabernacle. It's free and open to the public. We're talking about a very interesting figure in Western history, LDS history, Jane Elizabeth Manning James. She was among the early African-American converts to Mormonism. After joining the church in the early 1840s, she remained a faithful member until her death in Salt Lake City in 1908. She was well-known among church members during her lifetime, but largely forgotten after her death. However, beginning about the year 2000, there was a significant uptick in non-academic LDS discourse about James. Quincy Newell says that uh, this shows that she's become a way for Latter-day Saints to talk about both gender and race in ways, says Dr. Newell, that create a usable past for the 21st uh, century. So before the break, we were talking about uh, Jane James in the household of uh, Mormon founder, uh, Joseph uh, Smith. She was accepted, she says, into the bosom of the family. She was, yeah. Um, and I think that made later church leaders a little bit uncomfortable. The idea of creating an interracial family was something that they seemed pretty unsettled about. Um, and there's a process in the late 19th century of sort of memory creation. Leaders start remembering Joseph Smith as somebody who denied the priesthood to African-Americans, when in fact we know that there were at least a handful of African-American men who held the priesthood during his lifetime and that he was aware of that. Uh, so th- this, this memory creation, this, this, this move to uh, remove the priesthood from, from blacks, this, uh, uh, are the LDS leaders responding to societal pressures? Where, where is this coming from? It, it definitely seems to be at least partly due to societal pressures. Um, it's also important to remember that um, it, Mormons are coming into the church from outside, obviously, the church, and they're bringing their social attitudes with them. Um, so they come into the church and they think, 
they have this hierarchy of of race in their heads um, where white people are above black people and have more privileges than black people. And so it's natural, I think, in some ways for them to translate that into a hierarchy of church privileges um, as well. So during Brigham Young's tenure as church president, um, the extension of priesthood to African-American men is shut down. Um, and that lasts until 1978, with a few exceptions. We know, for example, that Elijah Abel held the priesthood during Joseph Smith's lifetime. He was an African-American man. Um, he was on one of the quorums of the 70. Um, he served several missions for the church. Um, and his son and his grandson both held the priesthood, extending into the 20th century. Um, so there are these sort of isolated exceptions, but for the most part, um, priesthood uh, is withdrawn from African-American men um, during the 19th century, and that extends into the 20th century. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that when priesthood is taken away from African-American men, that means African-American women also don't have the blessings of the priesthood. They can't go to the temple and receive endowments. They can't be sealed in marriage. They can't be sealed in adoptions. Um, they don't have anybody in their family who has priesthood, so they can't have a, a family member give blessings, for example, priesthood blessings. Um, so all of those blessings of the priesthood are also taken away from all African-Americans in the church, um, and African-Americans in the church become dependent on white priesthood holders for all of those services we could we could say so as you as you describe her jane james is uh, sort of the forrest gump of Mormonism. she's she's there with with uh, with joseph smith she works for brigham young she's there makes the trip in one of the early companies across the plains and uh, dies in 1908 through it all she maintains her faith she maintains her faith yeah her husband leaves the church um isaac james leaves the church um her children all more or less leave the church one of them one of her daughters marries a, a methodist minister and becomes a missionary to liberia um so for the most part jane is kind of a holdout um her brother also stays in the church, um, and he comes to live with Jane late in both of their lives. Um, so he and Jane are very respected members of the church. They have reserved seats in the tabernacle. Um, they're well-respected by the community and well-known in the community. Jane is referred to as Aunt Jane um, by most Mormons. They just, they all know who she is. Um, and so, so they have a place in the community, um, but in their families, they're fairly isolated. Mm. So uh, at the end of her life, I don't know about during her life, but at the end of her life, as you said, uh, she is petitioning church leaders, you know, move me back to the center. I was in the family of, you know, at least living with the family of Joseph Smith. I was accepted by him and his mother, and and uh, then I've, now I've been marginalized. Right, right. Bring me back. Yeah. Yeah, this starts, from the documentation that we have, we can tell that this starts at least by about the mid-1880s. Um, and Jane is starting to write letters to church leaders. She's paying visits to church presidents. Um, she is asking influential women to write on her behalf. Zina Young writes several letters for her. Um, and and she's saying, look, I, I think partly what's happening is she's starting to face down her own mortality and say, I need to get my house in order, right? Um, so I need to uh, get my endowments. I need to make sure that I'm sealed to the right people. Um, I need to make sure that my family is going to last because I love them. And uh, and so she keeps petitioning for these things and, and just doesn't get them until – after 1978, those those uh, that temple work has been done for her since 1978, but not before. We're talking about uh, Jane Elizabeth Manning James. She was among the early African-American converts to Mormonism. And I'm talking with Quincy Newell, who's writing a biography of Jane James. Dr. Newell uh, says that uh, uptick in conversation uh, about Jane James since about 2000 shows that uh, this is a way for Latter-day Saints to talk about gender and race. Uh, and uh, Quincy Newell is giving the 21st annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. That is tonight, 7 p.m. in the Logan LDS Tabernacle. It's free and open to uh, the public. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. That's toll-free number, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Here is a question from a listener. 
Um, just to have you comment on this. Um, with three vacancies in the LDS Quorum of the Twelve, uh, heading into the upcoming uh, General Conference of the LDS Church, is there a chance a non-white person will be called into the, the Quorum of the Twelve, which is, of course, one of the governing uh, uh, councils of the Church? Well, the listener is asking me to um, expand my expertise. I would say I, I, I will preface this with the um, statement that I'm an historian. I like my people dead. Um, my motto is the dead <laughs> right. are the better. Right. Um, so I think the LDS Church is very aware of um, the need for um, representation of populations other than white people um, in its leadership. Um, it's made more difficult by the fact that um, the way the leadership is structured means that you have to be in leadership for a very long time before you reach those highest levels um, of leadership. And that rules out a lot of uh, new converts, right? They're not going to convert somebody and then bring them straight into the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, so it's going to take a really long time for the uh the conversion of non-white peoples to show up in the leadership at the top levels. Um, so, it, sure, there's a chance. Um, I'll be watching carefully to to see what happens. There's a, a bigger chance than usual, I suppose, because it's three instead of right. often it's one that's, right. that's being right. picked at a time. Yeah. So. Um, so thanks for that. Thanks for that uh, question. You can get your question to us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can call us toll-free at 1-800-826-1495. The uh, talk this evening at 7 o'clock in the Tabernacle is in Logan is Narrating Jane, telling the story of an early African-American uh, Mormon woman. So Jane James is well-known. You're, you're saying she and her brother have, uh, you know, reserved seats at the, <laughs> the, the Tabernacle. I'll have to see if I can get that happen for <laughs> Good me. Good luck. Um, so at a fairly prominent place in the community, mm -hmm. what did Jane James mean to the LDS people at that time when they when they talk about her? Well, you know, uh, obviously her as a person and she's a, a friend and whatever, but if you talk about race or you talk about gender, were, were those things talked about? You know, what's interesting is that... Um so she goes to retrenchment society meetings. The retrenchment society is sort of an offshoot of the relief society. Um, and she speaks in tongues very regularly at retrenchment society meetings. So I know that she's going to these, those meetings because she shows up in their minutes, which are published in the Woman's Exponent. Um, and they never, ever, ever say um, that Jane is black in those minutes. Everybody just knows who she is, so they don't have to mark her race um, in the way that sometimes um, other references to her do. Sometimes she's she's talked about as Black Jane. Um, so so in that sense, everybody knows her. She's she's accepted as a part of the community. She is also a connection to Joseph Smith. She's part of that early generation who actually knew Joseph Smith. Um, and at the end of the 19th century, that generation is dying off. Um, so she becomes very valuable in that way because she's a connection back to those beginning times um, and to the founding prophet. Um, so her memories are um, are really valued, I think, by the community. That's why Elizabeth Roundy comes and, and records her autobiography, um, not just so that it can be read at Jane's funeral, but so that it's a record for the community of who Joseph Smith was and what he was like. Mm. Um, so in that sense, I think she is she's well-respected. She's well-liked. Um, she's Her children intermarry with other black families in Salt Lake, and so she's connected to the black community in Salt Lake as well, which is starting to grow um, in significant ways by the end of the 19th century. So at her funeral... Lots and lots and lots and lots of people show up. Um, it's a it's crowded, um, and church leaders speak at her funeral, um, mm. which I think is another sign of how well respected and how well known she is in the community. Um, that she has access to all those people and that she shows up in all those places. So would would she be unusual then? You compare her maybe to a lesser known African American woman. Sure, I I think she is in some ways unusual in that she she does have. Her currency is those stories of um, her time with Joseph Smith, um, and that's something that white Mormons really value, um, especially at the end of her life. Um, so that gives her a little more cachet than other African Americans might have at the time. Would she have been treated differently? 
Not a lot. Than others in I the black community. Hmm. No, not yeah, not a lot. Um, she she worked as a laundress. Um, she made soap. She did kinds of domestic service that other black people also would have done at mm-hmm. the time. What, what's the size of the African American community and that? It's relatively small. There are a few black, independent black churches that have started in Salt Lake in the 1880s. Um, so there, there are a handful of families. Um, they are large enough to sustain their own churches. Um, there are two different um, black newspapers published in Salt Lake for a time at the end of the 19th century. Um, so relative to the white population in Salt Lake, relatively small. Um, but in terms of... Um, the size of the community as a whole, they're big enough to to really sustain community institutions. Would most of them have been members of the Bailey's Church or not? Most of them were not. Were not, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because blacks were not accepted in the priesthood? In in large part, yeah. I think... Mormons were not proselytizing actively among African Americans by that point, um, and I think for a, particularly for black men, um, the idea that the priesthood was not available is contrary to um, prevalent ideas in the black community then about racial uplift and that sort of thing. Why join a church that's going to keep you down? Mm-hmm. Um, especially when there are independent black churches. Um, there's an AME church in Salt Lake, um, so that's African. African Methodist Episcopal. Um, and so so if you can join an independent black community that is a pillar of its community, um, that's going to be a more attractive option, um, unless you are completely and totally persuaded by the LDS message, mm-hmm. which I think Jane was. Let's uh, move it forward to today. And, and Star, you say that, you know, that, that she was well known at the time, we've been talking about that, uh, then largely forgotten. But around two, the year 2000, you're saying that there's an uptick in conversation about Jane James. What? Why 2000? Why? That's a great question. And it's something that puzzled me for a really long time. Um, in about 1999, I think, um, Margaret Young and Darius Gray start publishing a trilogy of historical novels about African-Americans in the LDS church. And Jane figures prominently in that trilogy. Um, and then in 2005, we get all sorts of talk about Jane. Um, and what I finally realized is that Jane is a way of talking about Joseph, right? Um, it's that same connection that Jane has to Joseph during her lifetime and that she plays on. Um, Mormons also work on um, today because talking about Jane gives, you, gives them a way to talk about Joseph as a non-racist and to remember his um, welcoming of Jane, to think about him in terms that um, that make him a racially egalitarian prophet for the 21st century. And 2005, of course, is the bicentennial of Joseph Smith's birth. So it's a way of thinking about, it's a time to reflect on who Joseph was and what his message is for the church in modern times. And therefore it becomes a way, a vehicle, Jane does, to, to talk about debate, I don't know, you know, issues of race and gender. Right, right. So what's interesting to me about Jane's story is that it's so very malleable. It can be used to support a, a kind of activist, feminist sort of position. It can be used to support a conservative, um, traditionalist kind of position on women's roles, on race. Um, it can be used to support an anti-Mormon position to say the LDS church is racist, was racist, and always will be racist. Um, and people have used used her story in all of those different ways um, to make their points. So she becomes a kind of symbol divorced from her actual experience. Mm-hmm. Which happens with a lot of figures, right? Right, right. The most the the person that got me thinking about Jane in this way is Nell Painter, who's a professor at um, Princeton and wrote a book about Sojourner Truth, who's story has been appropriated in all those different ways as well, um, as a kind of feminist, as a kind of uh, African-American rights, civil rights kind of person. Um, And the documentation on Sojourner Truth is just about as sparse as Mm. the documentation Mm -hmm. on Jane. So with all of those gaps, people can fill in what they want to see Mm -hmm. um, in the story. I was just thinking, I've been reading biographies recently of uh, Martin Luther Mm -hmm. and of Alexander Hamilton. And in both cases, I mean, you, you know going in what they stand for. 
but it's been very interesting to learn about the person. Right. And, and that's that gets lost in the shuffle sometimes, doesn't it? Right. It really does. Uh, let's uh, take another break. And don't we come back more on Jane James. We'll talk more about how uh, uh, people in the LDS Church, outside the LDS Church, uh, are using, have been using uh, Jane James's story uh, to talk about race and gender and other issues. And uh, we're talking with uh, Quincy Newell, who is uh, giving the 21st annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. And that's this evening at 7 o'clock in the LDS Tabernacle on Main Street in Logan. And it's uh, free and open to the public. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Cafe Ibis, 52 Federal Avenue in historic downtown Logan. Open seven days a week, featuring triple certified coffee, a seasonal organic ethnic deli, and espresso bar with culinary gifts. Ordering and location information is at cafeibis.com. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment, and we're talking with Quincy Newell, who is a specialist in the religious history of the American West. And uh, she's writing a, a biography of the person we've been talking about through the full hour, and that is uh, Jane James. Jane Elizabeth Manning James, she was among the early African-American converts to Mormonism. After joining the church in the early 1840s, she remained a faithful member until her death in Salt Lake City in 1908. Although she was well-known among church members during her lifetime, she was largely forgotten after her death. That has changed since about the year 2000. There's been a lot of conversation about Jane James. And uh, Dr. Newell uh, says this shows that uh, Jane James has become a way for Latter-day Saints to talk about both gender and race in ways that create a usable past for the 21st century. And uh, Quincy Newell is giving the 21st annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. That's happening in the LDS Tabernacle on Main Street in Logan this evening at 7 o'clock. It's free and open to the public. This is sponsored by Special Collections and Archives, University Libraries, Leonard G. Arrington Lecture and Archives Foundation, College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and Utah State University. So I'd like to uh, talk about that last sentence there in the in the blurb, um, talking about Jane James becomes a way for Latter-day Saints to talk about both gender and race in ways that create a usable past for the 21st century. Usable past. So when historians talk about a usable past, what they're talking about is we all tell our stories and our histories in ways that open up a set of possibilities for the future, right? And so we we can never include all of the details of a history. Um, every historian has to include some details and leave out other details, depending on the story that they want to tell. And the story that you tell, then if it opens up certain kinds of possibilities, that's a usable past. Um, so every institution does this. Um, every nation, every group of people tells stories about their past that open up paths for the future um, that they want to follow. And I think um, the story of Jane opens up a, a, a future for Latter-day Saints that is racially egalitarian, that is racially even progressive, um, and that it is that way because it makes the, the church always historically diverse. Um, it says, we have always had black people in the church. Look at Jane, right? Um, and our prophet was welcoming to black people. Look at Jane's experience with Joseph. Um, so in that way, that that usable past allows Latter-day Saints to envision a future that is racially egalitarian. Um, it also takes gender ideals and uh, ideals of family construction um, from the early early 21st century, late 20th century and reads them back into the past. Jane is envisioned as a kind of model of Mormon femininity. So when Latter-day Saints tell her story, they rarely talk about, say, Frank Perkins, the man she took up with after her husband left, um, because that's complicated. Mm -hmm. They don't usually talk about the question of um, 
the paternity of her first son, who was not the son of Isaac James. She brought her first son from Connecticut to Nauvoo with her before she met Isaac. Um, And that sexual history is complicated and doesn't really fit into these neat 21st century boxes um, about how women are supposed to behave, particularly in in sexual ways, um, and how families are supposed to look. Um, And so reading the ideals of the Proclamation on the Family, the 1995 document, back into Jane's history allows Latter-day Saints, I think, to um, envision those ideals as timeless instead of as products of their own time. Mm. And so the ways Latter-day Saints talk about Jane allow them to walk away from the priesthood restrictions and the temple restrictions that African-Americans dealt with through most of the church's history and to think about the church as a a welcoming place for both white and black Latter-day Saints. Mm. And it allows them to think about ideals of femininity that have been promulgated in the late 20th century as timeless. Mm. Uh, so I can see the positive aspects of the, you know, the, those aspects of Jane James's history. You can then project the future right. that, that you're advocating for, that you would, that you would like. Uh, of course, there are other, and you've been referring to these, other parts of her autobiography that Perhaps you don't emphasize if you're if you're going for a, a specific history, and as a historian, I wonder is that you know this is what peoples do, <laughs> this is what we do is is that good or bad? It's well, it it is what it is, right? Um, but it is problematic, I think, um, because when when you don't think about the full history of Jane, for example, um, you can't really deal with the problems in that history. So one of the pieces that I'll talk about tonight in my lecture is this monument in the Salt Lake Cemetery to Jane. And the monument has two sides. It's a a small block of granite, um, and it has brass plaques on both sides. And on one side is a picture of Jane giving some flour to Eliza Lyman, which is an incident that's recorded in Eliza's diary um, and saved the Lyman family from starvation. Um, on the other side is a, it's all text, and it sort of gives a brief biography of Jane with um, excerpts from her uh, autobiography. The only reference to Jane's race in the entire monument is that she was born free. It never says that she was African American or black. It makes no mention directly of her race, even though she's being memorialized in that place because she was an early African-American Latter-day Saint. And I think that shift is so interesting. So they want to talk about her because she's black, but instead of talking about her blackness, they talk about her in the context of families in that biography. So it becomes about family and it becomes about femininity instead. So uh, is it mo- which way is it moving, do you think? in terms of, you know, getting all of that in there or picking and choosing? That's a great question. And I I don't know. Um, I think right now we're at a place where um, talking about a black woman became, becomes a way of talking about femininity rather than race. Um, the church recently released a new headnote for official declaration too um, that starts to try and address the church's racial history. Um, but it it ultimately doesn't, I think. It says that there are, there's no clear um, understanding from church documents about why the priesthood was denied to black men. Um, and I think most historians would tell you, actually, church documents give us a pretty clear picture of why that was the case. Mm. Um, so you can debate the semantics of that, but I think there's still a lot of discomfort in the church about that racial past and about how to address it straight, straightforwardly. Mm. So you, you would suggest the church address it a little more straightforwardly then? I think that's the only way to make progress. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with assistant church historian Richard Turley, um, who he, he co-authored a book about Mountain Meadows. Mm-hmm. And his, his point of view was this is perhaps the darkest chapter in church history. Let's, let's you know, pull off the, you know, the bandages or whatever and let the sunlight in, you know, let the chips fall where they may, and and then healing can perhaps begin. Right. Right. And I think this links up to a a larger history of African Americans in the United States, that 
Americans need to deal straightforwardly with the legacy of racism in our history. Um, and until we face up to that history, um, we can't just say, oh, slavery is over and done with, let's move on. We need to say, you know, it, it caused real problems and real pain. And we need to apologize for that. Um, and we need to deal with the problems that it caused. We can't just ignore them. Just have a couple of minutes left. And I wonder what Jane James would say. This, you know, she's she's looking down from heaven or whatever, you know, and 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 she's interested. I'm probably pleased that she's being talked about and remembered. I think. What, 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 how would she like to be remembered? Yeah, I've wondered about this myself. Um, I think she would be pleased that she is being talked about. She certainly made an effort to be talked about. She talked incessantly about her religious experience. Um, and I think for the most part, she would be happy about the ways that she is being talked about. Um, it seems to me that her her sort of stubbornness almost was a was an effort to get what she wanted. And she did finally get what she wanted. It just took an extra 100 years or so. Um, yeah. Uh, so what feedback do you get when you talk about Jane James? The usual response when I tell people that I'm writing about an early black Mormon is there were early black Mormons, <laughs> um, a, a sort of look in, of confusion. Um, so I enjoy talking about Mormonism because it tends to be the time when I am able to educate people the most. I tend... I tend not to have the opportunity to talk to Mormons about Mormonism. Um, I'm talking a lot to, to non-Mormons. Um, and so I, I do a lot of education. People are really fascinated um, and really interested in, particularly in Jane. Um, I just, I, how can you not be interested? She's mm. so fascinating. Yeah. Well, to learn more, you'll have to go to the lecture. If you're in northern Utah, you can certainly do that this evening at 7 o'clock. And the lecture is titled Narrating Jane, Telling the Story of an Early African-American Mormon Woman. Uh, The lecture is Quincy Newell. She is a specialist in the religious history of the American West. And uh, after a stint at the University of Wyoming, she's now at Hamilton College. Uh, her first book, Constructing Lives at Mission San Francisco, 1776 to 1821, was published by University of Mexico Press. She's working on a biography of uh, Jane James. That'll be out from Oxford University Press. And the 21st annual Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture is this evening at 7 o'clock in the Logan LDS Tabernacle on Main Street in Logan. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how Utah's mountain ranges were raided and its rivers put to work in order to build the railroad. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. When the Transcontinental Railroad came to Utah in 1868 and 69, and as branch lines later spread through the territory, railroad builders faced a huge need for wood in order to tie the rails together. Suitable wood was sparse, except in the forests of the Wasatch and Uinta Mountains. So how is wood transported from the high mountains down to the construction sites? Roads into the timbering slopes were difficult to build and dangerous to use. Sometimes ice slides were made in winter to get logs to where they could be loaded onto sledges or wagons. But the easier way was to float the wood down the Bear, Provo, and Weber rivers. Railroad contractors would send in small crews to cut trees, hack them into the right shape, and stack the newly hewn ties onto the riverbanks. During spring runoff, the ties were floated down the rivers to a location where they could be pulled out and transported to the crews laying track. Ties could be floated over 100 miles downriver, with annual tie drives lasting up to two months, depending on how long the high water ran. Sometimes the riverbanks had to be built up or channeled out in order to keep the ties moving. Men known as drivers used poles to loosen jams. Sometimes the logs would be so tightly jammed that a man could walk on them for as much as a mile. The drivers wore hip boots and often worked in water up to their armpits. When the runoff ceased, ties were sometimes stranded until the next season. 
Utah's largest tie drive happened around 1886, with 350,000 ties from various companies going downstream. Tie drives were hazardous and made a significant dent in Utah's forests. Without them, however, the construction of the National Railroad Network would not have happened. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Utah Division of State History. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. When you think Domino's Pizza, you think pizza. Fair enough, but try Tech Giant, too. We believe by transaction counts uh, that we are in the top five of, uh, of e-commerce companies in the world. I'm Kai Rizdal, the pizza emoji, and the rest of the day's business news next time on Marketplace from APN. Please join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. How can partially burned wood help the soil and your plants? Learn about biochar this Thursday on the Zesty Garden. It's also tomato day as we talk about how to preserve tomatoes. You can roast and freeze them in addition to canning. There's also a recipe for tomato pie. To begin the show, however, USU Extension Fruit Specialist Brent Black gives the details of recent small fruit taste panels, just which berries were voted the most flavorful. you want to tune in to Thursday morning at 10 o'clock to the Zesty Garden from Utah Public Radio. I'm Robin Young. David Brashears was on Everest when eight climbers died there. He filmed part of the new fictionalized movie about the disaster, and it still chills him. It really shows me how fragile we are and how much we are at the mercy of the whims of of Mother Nature when you get above 26,000 feet. Next time on Here and Now. Please join us Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Next time on Ask Me Another, you know our VIP is Maria from Sesame Street. It's Sonia Manzano. And she told us what 123 Sesame Street was like when she first joined the show. It it was just darker. It was just darker. It was gritty. (laughs) It was a gritty place. (laughs) Join me, Ophira Eisenberg, for NPR's hour of puzzles, word games, and trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University. This is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.